I'm Jen, and I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. We all want our children to lead fulfilling lives, but it can be so hard to keep up with the latest scientific research on child development and figure out whether and how to incorporate it into our own approach to parenting. Here at Your Parenting Mojo, I do the work for you by critically examining strategies and tools related to parenting and child development that are grounded in scientific research and principles of respectful parenting. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes are released and get a free guide called 13 Reasons Why Your Child Isn't Listening to You and What to Do About Each One, just head on over to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash subscribe. You can also continue the conversation about the show with other listeners in the free Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. I do hope you'll join us. Welcome to the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Today we're here with a guest who is a luminary in his field of trauma psychology, Dr. Bessel van der Kolk. Dr. van der Kolk has been at the forefront of translating emerging findings from neuroscience and attachment research to develop and study a range of treatments for traumatic stress in children and adults for decades now. He began by studying post-traumatic stress disorder in veterans and has gone on to study it in other adults as well as how trauma affects children. He's studied treatments to help people improve their functioning in the world by looking beyond symptoms to understanding the causes of their behavior that's generating their problems, and then not just shifting their cognitive understanding of the problems and the causes, but also showing them how to change their physical experience of their lives. Dr. Van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, is required reading for anyone who wants to begin understanding that trauma isn't just something we experience in our brains, but something that lives in us. If what you hear in today's interview resonates with you and you see how the trauma that you've experienced in your life is impacting your relationship with your children today, I invite you to join my Taming Your Triggers workshop, which is open for registration from Sunday, August 1st through Wednesday, August 11th. It's a 10-week course where you learn the real sources of your triggered feelings, which either lie in the kinds of big T traumatic experiences that we'll discuss here today, or potentially in not having your needs seen and met by your parents. You'll get all the support you need in our private, non-Facebook community, and you can sign up to get an accounter buddy to bounce ideas off as you're learning them, and to hold you gently accountable for doing the work when you might otherwise just let it fall by the wayside because it's difficult or maybe even threatening to the stories that your overactive left brain has told you about your experiences for all these years. You can go to yourparentingmojo.com forward slash taming your triggers to learn more about the course and sign up. I also wanted to mention that we had some technical challenges during this interview, so you may notice a little bit of choppiness as we had to remove some sections because they weren't understandable. But even so, there's such an incredible amount of value in what Dr. van der Kolk was saying that I know you're going to get something useful out of it. So here we go. I was curious to hear your interview with Krista Tippett and On Being, which a, a number of people have recommended as, as a really stellar interview. Yeah. And uh, you had talked about how people in other cultures have things like dancing and moving and singing really integrated into their cultures and religions. And I haven't been to church since I was a child, but there was no there was no dancing. There's no moving. <laughs> 
in the Church right. of England. And right. it also reminded me of Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands, where he described people who were enslaved using yeah. exactly these practices to continue their culture and heal their trauma. Yep. Yeah, but we just kind of stuff it down and then it comes back to bite us later and we find that we need the pills and that we need the, the alcohol or it feels like we need that. Um, what's What happened in our culture, do you think, to make us sort of head down in that direction instead of these other practices that seem like they're much more beneficial? Well, of course, it depends a little on the culture that we live in. Uh, like, let's say you would live in Berkeley, California. It would not be unusual to go to your yoga studio. Uh, <laughs> but in other parts of the country, uh, you are a traitor to your religion if you mm. practice yoga. Uh, very so true, yeah. Very much on, on your environment. In, among the people I hang out with, uh, having a yoga practice and meditation practice would be, or even martial arts practice would be very common. Uh, but that's a small segment of the population, of course. Um, you know, people like easy answers. And uh, and that's true all over the world. Uh, let me give you an example. Um, a few years ago, there was this huge tsunami in the, in the Indian Ocean. And a, a, a group from my clinic went down to Sri Lanka to do first aid. And they called me from the beach in Sri Lanka and said, Bessel, they have everything here that they need to recover. They are moving together, they're singing together, they have rituals, it's beautiful. But down the street, Pfizer Pharmaceuticals has come with pills and they, all these Sri Lankan people are lining up behind the, the Pfizer truck to get the pill to make the pain go away. Mm -hmm. And I think that's always uh, around the world an issue is uh, what is the community strong enough to induce you to share your pain communally or do you go off drinking or drugging by yourself? And I think that's, you know, you see that all over the world in some ways, but in other parts of the world, the, the other things are more easily accessible. Yeah, and I think it might have been in that On Being episode or another uh, interview that I heard from you where you were talking about how you uh, helped out in Puerto Rico after the hurricane. I think it, I think it was, if I'm remembering that correctly. Rico, yeah, yeah. yeah, and that, uh, that again, people were sort of uh, taking charge of what needed to be done and, and uh, they had a sense of autonomy over the start of the repair work and then FEMA arrives and take and completely yeah. takes over the whole thing and, <laughs> and says that you're going to do it how we're going to do it and stop doing all these things you've been doing and yeah. it just seems as though we sort of impose these ways on, on other people a lot of the time as well yeah and of course american society has these inborn things about top-down versus uh individualistic enterprises uh, you know, but you know you can say all kinds of things are inaccessible but america is still the land of innovation <laughs> but somehow our culture is still of it's okay to start something new and start to to try out new things. And you see things happen all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's this tension between, uh, but we don't have a government that's really for us, for the people, but at least we still have a culture where uh, there's a relative amount of possibility for people to develop alternative structures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I'd love to sort of go back a little bit, as it were, into uh, your history of, of 
uh, working with people who have experienced trauma. And I know that you were really struck by the early, early animal research where uh, researchers, not including you, <laughs> were giving painful electric shocks to dogs while they were trapped in cages and then they would open the cage doors and the dogs who yeah. had been shocked would just kind of sit there whimpering. And I think this has obvious parallels to situations like domestic abuse where we might say, yeah. well, why doesn't the patient, the person just leave? But I'm also interested in the implications of this for people who are not in the thick of the trauma right now, that it has happened to them in the past, something like, you know, divorce and bullying and things that happened in our childhood, and that this has profoundly shifted the ways that we show up in our relationships with our children today. And I think it's so tempting to just say, well, you're not in that hurtful situation anymore that you were in when you were a child. Why don't you just do it differently? Why, why doesn't that work? Because you still are in that situation, because we become who we are on the basis of the experiences that we have had. And the experiences that we have had in our brain mind predicts how things will be in the future. So if your experience as a kid is that the people who aren't supposed to take care of you regularly humiliate you, put you down, make you feel terrible about yourself, that becomes your map of the world. And then later on, you may meet somebody who puts you down, um, uh, humiliates you, and you go like, wow, this person is a terrible person, but I feel at home. Mm. And you may feel more comfortable in its, in its own bizarre way with that person who does nasty things to you than somebody who's actually nice to you. Uh, so, so these early experiences really set your expectations and set your reward system of your brain. You know, so that certain things become pleasurable that for other people may not be pleasurable, or they may feel terrible that for other people feel terrific. And that's not a conscious decision because these things get laid down in the nether regions of your brain. Yeah. And it, I think it... Um has a lot of connections obviously to attachment theory and I've been digging into a, a lot of reading on that lately and how uh, babies will even seek out attachment they'll they'll uh, be motivated to connect with a parent even if the parent is uh, abusive towards the child right. so it, it's we're 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 communal creatures mm. uh, for me by far the most interesting course I took in college was about Harlow and his monkeys mm. and it turns out that now uh, several of my closest friends were working for Harlow at the same time that I was studying Harlow. Ah. Um, and, you know, seeing how we as human beings really are uh, little monkeys with a gigantic frontal lobe. And I, I always love to look at monkeys because they chase each other and they groom each other, they fight and they do things very much like human beings do. Huh? Um, and what Harlow found is that uh, monkeys need to be attached and humans need to be attached there's not like an option you know COVID is not like oh let's just be by ourselves for a year and, and not connect with other people no that is who we are mm -hmm. uh, we are defined by our context defined by uh, who, uh, the people who know us the people who don't know us the people who recognize us to make us people make us feel special that's who we are. Most of our brain is for social enterprise. 
Yeah. So there's yeah. Se severe problems there when we can't do that. And just for anyone who's listening who is not familiar with the Harlow's experiment, this is where uh, he's creating these monkeys made out of wire that, I mean, some of them would puff air at the baby every time the baby tried to hug up to it. Some, some of them had spikes on, some of them were just a terry cloth over the piece of wire. And you see these pitiful pictures of babies and <laughs> monkeys hugging I mean, onto this terry cloth. The babies to the mothers with the warm terry cloth. Yeah. Yeah. Rather than the mothers who feed them, which is really interesting. So <laughs> the touch thing, actually, just, we're doing research right now on touch and trauma. Uh, uh, feeling, being touched, being held mm. is very much at the core of who we are. Yeah. Oh, can you tell me some more about that? What are you looking at in that research? Oh, we're looking at um, that a lot of traumatized people are terrified of touch mm -hmm. and uh, don't feel comfortable with touch or need touch all the time or that don't get comfort from touch so there's a real altered relationship to your bodily systems and you know because we have been so drugs or yakking uh in our field we haven't paid attention to that and for me it's interesting that there have been nobel prizes figuring out how vision works and how audition works and how smell works and somehow people left out touch Mm -hmm. And touch has been virtually not studied, even though the first thing we do when we're distressed is to hold on to each other. Mm. Uh, and often when something terrible happens, you don't even have words. But just feeling somebody, hope uh, even better, is bigger and stronger than you are, to hold you and say, it will be okay. It's very powerful. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, people who are traumatized have terrific difficulties taking in the comfort of touch living with it and i think that's a dimension that we need to pay much more attention to yeah yeah i agree and i think it, it's partly to do with the the body brain split that we <laughs> enforce through various aspects of our culture where that's culture it's just like yeah. Yeah, that's who we are uh, yeah yeah we privilege everything that happens in the brain as rational and and better than anything else that's happening elsewhere in the body and yeah so i was um thinking then about uh some of the ways that people who maybe don't have access to therapy can do work on on some of the trauma that they've experienced and it seems as though touch could be a really important part of that is that right oh yeah but the other thing is become increasingly clear to me is so i went to medical school and so psychiatry school and then you think that, okay, this is the avenue for mental health. You meet social workers, occupational therapists, who find a slightly different avenue to mental health. And then you realize after a while that all of us just do a very small part of the overall thing. Mm -hmm. um, maybe the director of your choir, or maybe your uh, music teacher, or maybe your physical, phys ed instructor, or your, uh, your boxing coach, may be as useful for you as a traumatized person as a therapist could be. Mm. And a therapy is just a small part of the whole large um, spectrum of issues that get affected by trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so talking is uh, can, can be helpful, <laughs> but there are a whole yeah. lot of other things that are useful yeah. too. You know, and for a while, I really sort of poo-pooed words because I always thought that everybody talked in great depth with their patients. And then I started to do, do a lot of supervision, particularly past year. And I hear that a lot of people mistake advice giving and wagging their fingers for therapy. <laughs> and of course, that's very different. <laughs> and, bit, so, yeah. <laughs> and I have been fairly unimpressed 
with the art of really listening and mm -hmm. really helping people to find words for their internal experience doesn't seem to be essential to the field as it was when I grew up. So I'm sort of really going back into, no, people need to find words for themselves. People need to know who they are. They need to discover who they are and find words for the internal experience. In the same way that when you have a baby, a very important part of having that baby is to help that baby to talk and find words for things outside of themselves and things inside of themselves. Mm -hmm. And when you traumatize, you oftentimes have to have words for the inner experience and trying to say what it is, say what's going on, and make a verbal connection with your inner world is actually quite important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you also look a lot at tools like mindfulness and yoga as well. And you've done research on the effectiveness of those in helping people who are traumatized. Can you tell us about that? Well, the mindfulness research was really done uh, by a very curious marriage of the Dalai Lama and Tibetan Buddhists with a bunch of uh, neuroscientists who really met each other, Richard Davidson and John Kabat-Zinn and people like that. And they sort of fell in love with each other and it set up this whole thing of the Mind Life Institute where people really looked at what the inner experience feels like. It was very productive, beautiful work was done. and. Uh, we got a much deeper understanding about what self is and the relationship to yourself is and how it's laid down in your brain and how disturbed it is by trauma. But we also discovered that, and so we know that mindfulness is in, in order to have a mind, you need to be mindful. In order to be in control of yourself, you need to actually know where your mind is and what your mind wants, etc., etc. Um, but what we also discovered is if you're traumatized, uh, you have all these sensations in your body that can be extremely uncomfortable. And for many traumatized people doing meditation is very scary mm -hmm. to just allow the sensation in your body to come out. Uh, they may be very disturbing. And what is very striking about many traumatized people who I've known and still know is that they love to turn on the television, they love to blast music, and they love to have a lot of activities anything to not have to experience an internal self mm -hmm. uh, and so uh, meditation sounds so wonderful but in fact when you're traumatized it's a very hard thing to do and yoga is easier because in yoga instead of focusing on, on on nothingness inside you focus on getting the back to touch your toe and to twist yourself at a particular angle you activate the same circuits but you you know you actually are able to focus more on your body and be less subject to, to all kind of unpleasant old stuff coming up and coming back to haunt you. Mm. Yeah, so it's almost like they work in parallel then that um, that the the physical focus on the movement in the yoga may open up some space for the mindfulness as well. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Um, and I know that uh, in one of your papers, you, you cite a number of body-based practices like focusing and sensory awareness and Feldenkrais and Hakomi, and there's so many of these body-based practices. And, yes. and I wanted to quote what you said. You said, the nature and effects of these practices are not easily articulated and their meanings are not easily captured in the dominant intellectual categories, which I think is your way of saying essentially what I found, which is that there's essentially no academic research on any of these techniques beyond the mindfulness and the yoga. And I I think yes, that, some. 
okay so it's so tell you all the names of all three people who actually yes please do because i would love to (laughs) to read all three papers (laughs) so 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 how do we move forward with this i mean i know that uh, academic research is important when you're looking at population level recommendations because we want to make sure we're spending our time and our money effectively but if if we're an individual and we're looking to understand well could one of these practices help me is there a way that we can do that based on the the three people who are doing research in this arena well, you know, we don't need to do music on, uh, research and everything. You know, people live without research on what music is most pleasing, or mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, you don't necessarily need to go the academic route. Um, but clinical practices always are ahead of academic investigations, and so a, a really good clinician knows much more than anybody in laboratory does, because it takes much longer for laboratories to catch up with clinical complexities. And so, like recently, there was a conference at Harvard where they talked about various things, stuff, the trauma, and I sat there and I said, yeah, I studied that back in 1989, I studied it back in 1991, and somehow it didn't move. Mm. And people keep rediscovering all the old stuff again mm-hmm. and then they'll probably discover like i did is that the stuff is held in the body you need to work with the body but um once it goes to mainstream academia they need to rediscover all this old stuff again <laughs> <laughs> yeah um yeah. Uh, but, but but how can but, we know that even the thing we're doing is safe i mean i know you've talked about rolfing and i didn't know what that was so what i know about rolfing is that our bodies get configured along the lines of what's required for them. Mm-hmm. So if you're a little kid and you need to be really tough, you get a real tough body and you walk around like this tough creature. Mm-hmm. And if you think that the only way I'm going to survive is by being compliant and never letting people know how angry I am, you see uh, you get the configuration of a mouse um, and you walk through the world like, uh, like, please don't hit me, don't hit me. Mm-hmm. And so these things get actually configured in your body, and that's what Ida Rolf taught us, and, you know, it was sort of weird for me uh, when I was a medical student, but then later on you discover that's true, and then uh, what Rolfing does, it actually opens up these set patterns of your fascia and your muscles so you don't get trapped in a body that continues to live out the fear, the terror, etc., etc. of the past. Mm-hmm. So it's a very solid good thinking okay Um, all right so i wonder if we can go back to some of uh what you said earlier about uh your the idea of what the self is and how that's laid down in in early childhood through things like attachment relationships and um i I think that also connects with uh things that you had uh, learned from dr elvin samrad you talked about in the book about how he uh wants us to connect to be honest with ourselves and connect with uh the reality of our lives and i'm curious about your thoughts on that uh, we have done some digging on that topic and talked with dr chris niebauer about his book no self no problem which is a, the basic premise is that there's kind of no reality that we can know that yes we can experience this moment but then our left brain is making up a story about what actually happened to fit within our broader understanding and our existing memories and what we actually end up sort of encoding into our memory can have very very little basis in the thing that actually happened and so yeah. how, how can we fit those two ideas together this idea of i i have ideas about where i've come from where i've been and what that means for me right now and also that essentially it, our left brains are very overactive and and that we can't necessarily believe very much of what they tell us 
<laughs> I think it's all true. Uh, <laughs> but, but, no, we are meaning making creatures. Huh? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I'd like to say is that every tribe in the world probably has had an explanation of why the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. Mm -hmm. And most of the explanations were wrong. But if you and I agree on our meaning making system, on whatever the moon goddess makes advice, then we are good friends. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really matter whether it's reality. It's, the question is whether we create the same meaning universe. Mm. Of course, that's ha happening in America more and more, mm -hmm. where there's large spots of people who have no idea what the other person is talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and that is uh, that's really it's confronting us right now. But, um, but when you're traumatized, things are oftentimes so confusing and so scary and so unclear who is causing what that your head is in a great model mm -hmm. and then finding a way of making meaning for yourself is enormously helpful and that's really what therapy is about is that let me see what happened to this kid and and then you get in this whole issue of self-blame and self-hatred and feeling this must have happened to me because I was a bad person and people treated me like a bad person anyway. So you get this very deep sense of being damaged good and being wrong. But, the, but a very important way of getting out of that is to really hear yourself say it and to find these words and find the words that you have for yourself and go like, wow, oh, that's how I think about myself. I think myself myself as this piece of shit that's good for nothing. Oh, that's why I kept going to that bar where people did terrible things to me, because I really don't have the sense that I deserve anything better. Huh, interesting. I didn't know that about myself. So words are still important. And finding somebody who helps you to find words as cautiously as they can without inflicting too much of their own value system on you is quite important. Mm -hmm. But our value systems come in there anyway. It's important to be kind and generous, not only with other people, but with yourself. It's important to be still. It's important to empty out your mind, stuff like that. Mm -hmm. but, but you asked me another question that I'd like to say something. And that's, how do, we, how do we change the culture? My agenda these days, more than anything else, is, and I consider myself a bit of a preacher man, is to see if we can get a policy that in every classroom in America, from K to 12, kids are being taught every week about the four hours reading, writing, arithmetic, and self-regulation. That kids are taught to experience themselves, to feel themselves, to have a language for themselves, to have a language for their internal experience, to have a language for what happens in their brain, a language that happens in their bodies, and that kids are being taught that when you become really nervous, the way you breathe really will help you to calm yourself down. When you feel really upset, tapping certain acupressure points on your body may help you to, to refocus. Maybe when you get really upset and you run around the block and really expend a lot of energy, you may feel safer. Mm -hmm. And so that all of us get taught that regulating yourself and owning yourself is a core part of existence that's, that's worthy of one of the four core things that you learn as you grow up. Wouldn't that be amazing? <laughs> totally not the case.
Yep. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and not just to teach it from the perspective of, well, you need to learn to, as soon as you said self-regulate, my mind right. immediately went to, well, yes, because that makes it easier for the teachers to, <laughs> to yeah. sort of keep a classroom of 30 kids under control. But what, what you're really talking about here is that this is a fundamental skill for throughout life. And if we're just learning these skills in adulthood, then, right. you know, Im imagine how our lives could have been different if we had understood uh, from an early age, yeah. what capacities we have ourselves to regulate yeah. ourselves that just because uh, somebody says something that we find distressing doesn't mean that we have to feel anger if we if we're we can choose right. a different response we can um, or, to, or to feel the anger and then to say and uh, to have a choice about what to do with the anger. exactly yeah, uh, yeah. That, i think that's a very important thing that, yeah. that's the four r the r the fourth r is yes people will do things that will piss me off <laughs> and so when I feel that impulse, oh, I feel impulse to plant my fist in their face right now. How interesting. <laughs> I think I'll probably not do that. I'll just, uh, I'll just sort of check myself out. Or, so you really build up an internal capacity to really notice your emotions, notice your sensations, and take care of them. Yeah. And not have them sort of run with you. Huh? Yeah, and there's there's nothing like that in our culture right now at all anywhere, is there? Yeah, I mean, that that's why parents are here listening to this right now, so that they can start to do this work and break the cycle and introduce these ideas to their children. At the same time, the young parents who I see in my surroundings, which aren't all that many and not representative, are extraordinarily good in doing their things with their kids. How they find language for their feelings, they talk with their kids. Uh, the greatest predictor of... Uh, adult function the two most important predictors of adult function that i know of has uh, been scientifically studied is one daily family meals where people talk to each other and do not look at screens mm -hmm. and being involved in team sports where you learn to pass the ball to each other and to be part of a larger group of people these are very powerful predictors of good adult functioning actually yeah and so uh, and I think that's something that's happened to our culture, possibly. I don't know how most people live, but sitting down at a, at a table and talking together. Huh? Terribly important, just how was your day? What is it like? Oh, so and so got mad at me. What's it like for you? How can you do with it? Uh, and to really talk about your experiences as a, as a group of people who have something to say and learn to hear that whatever your opinion experiences is important to you mm -hmm. uh, and so find a language for yourself is, is enormously important yeah and being very clear about meal times and that we sit together uh you know in some christian families people may sing by their meals that uh, probably very useful singing together is a beautiful thing for people to do or jewish families sing together uh, uh i think secular families don't have a lot of songs to sing but <laughs> Seeger songs or something. <laughs> we find other Don't things to do with our time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, in our house we read Black Lives Matter or Black History flashcards <laughs> and learn about that. So you have talked a lot about how children who have uh, grown up in abusive environments perceive almost any situation as a trigger and that that reminds them of the danger that they may have faced and, and may even continue to face. But we tend to apply these diagnostic labels like conduct disorder and ADHD and oppositional defiance. Pardon? We can savvy. 
I would not apply those labels. No, uh, but we uh, yeah. in society wide yeah. <laughs> tend to do those things. Um, and yeah, Dr. Gross Green has, has said that oppositional defiant disorder is code for this kid hates my guts. Um, and so I, I yeah. know that you have you have tried to uh, have what you've called developmental trauma disorder listed in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual a few years ago, and unfortunately it didn't happen. Um, I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about the kinds of trauma that uh, lead to what you would have called a developmental trauma disorder in, in the DSM. Oh, yeah. the, the definition of developmental trauma disorder was that uh, terrible things happen to you you get beaten up or molested or you witness violence in the context of an environment there where, um, where with caregivers who are not dedicated to making you feel safe. And so it's where the attachment system meets the trauma system. And so the worst thing that can happen to a person, it happens all the time, is if your own parents are the source of your misery. Mm -hmm. uh, your own parents beat you up, your own parents molest you. Then as a kid you have nowhere to go because we are wired to turn to our, our parents to make us feel safe. And so when that system gets disturbed, you get developmental trauma disorder uh, or all this huge list of things in the DSM um, that all have no scientific validity, opposition, conduct disorder, self-mutilation, blah, 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 blah. Uh, these are all, all the results of growing up unsafe and terrified. Mm -hmm. And of course, if you adopt kids, uh, that becomes more complicated because you may be a very thoughtful and non-traumatized person yourself who's quite tolerant and attuned to the needs of that kid. But if you have been adopted, you, uh, the kid may have all kinds of things that are missing in terms of their capacity to take in your kindness and your warmth and you may feel very frustrated trying to do well by these kids and they don't really respond to you uh, because uh, once you get traumatized as a kid it becomes really difficult to reset and rewire their brain to really take in the milk of you the pleasure of the milk of human kindness mm -hmm. Okay, and so I think that part of the reason that you were trying to get this into the DSM was that there's uh, a, a link between being able to diagnose something effectively and being able to treat it effectively. Um, so that's what kind of problems does it Diagnosis. That's why we don't like nonsense diagnosis like opposite <laughs> disorder. Mm -hmm. Because if you have something wrong with you, I'm a doctor, you know, um, and if I have a cough and I have blood coming out of something, I want you to figure out what is wrong with me and not give you the diagnosis that the insurance company will pay me for to give to you. And in that regard, mental health completely has sold its soul to a system that is determined by how much you get reimbursed by insurance companies, mm -hmm. rather than finding out what does this particular person need. Yeah, it's it's very unfortunate, uh, <laughs> for sure. Um, and I'm, I'm wondering also the extent to which uh, this comes into play for children who maybe haven't been sort of horrifically traumatized, but maybe they went through a pattern of, of just having their needs were not met. And um, I'm, so, I'm sort of thinking of Dr. Alice Miller's work where she yeah. uh, talks about um, children who were just kind of habitually didn't have needs met in childhood. And, and 
is it the case that that can sort of stack up over time and form a kind of trauma in children as well? It's, I would say it forms a pattern of adaptation mm. uh, because you have this need to feel attached. Uh, we really, uh, we're fundamentally unable to cut off all ties with everybody. Mm -hmm. uh, and so when you live in scary, abusive surroundings, you adjust yourself to try to live with whatever's going on, even if it's at the expense of yourself. And you can say, oh, my parents are wonderful people. They beat me up from time to time because I'm a rotten kid. Mm -hmm. uh, or I deserve it. I'm really fundamentally evil. And so it's okay to do this stuff for me. Or, uh, and so people find ways of accommodating to this reality. And it's very difficult for them to say, no, I'm not being honored. I'm not being taken seriously. This is not love. And to go and to leave a situation very, very difficult for people to do. Yeah, and essentially impossible for children, right? Even even if they yeah. and, they, and may not even have the language to say my yeah. needs are not being met. It's it, yeah. because no. the the parent is such an omniscient, omnipotent person. If the parent is not giving me what I need, it must be my fault. The problem must right. be me. <laughs> you don't know what your needs are. Right. You just know that you feel terrible. Mm -hmm. And so when we're thinking about uh, sort of how we think about disease in a way, you know, mental uh, health and, and disease, you, you talk about how the brain disease model really overlooks what you say are four fundamental truths. And, and I was super surprised in reading it. And of course, I'm much less surprised now in, in, in talking with you that three of these four are related to connections with other people. And the one that isn't is about regulating our own physiology. And, and we've talked about that quite a lot on the podcast. Um, but the other things, paraphrasing, are things that are, are uh, while relationships destroy each other people uh, they also heal each other that language helps us to achieve this healing through a sense of common meaning and that we can change social conditions so that people can feel safe and, and thrive and it seems to me as though it's not just the brain disease model that's flawed but it's the problem it, it's this whole idea of you have a problem and you need to work on fixing it <laughs> that's flawed do, do you agree with that perspective well, I, I wrote it, so <laughs> <laughs> obviously I do. Uh, no, we are we are monkeys, you know. Uh, we are meant to be with other people. Uh, our brain is to be with other people. Our language is to be communicated to other people. That's who we are, uh, and so uh, people can do miracles with each other, you know. Particularly, um, you're more open for that earlier in your life, but if you just have the right kindergarten teacher, you can get a sense of, oh, this is what it feels like when somebody pays attention to you. Mm -hmm. Or if you're lucky enough that you, if your first boyfriend, your first girlfriend, when you're 16, 17, 18, uh, is a person who really thinks that you're wonderful and with whom you have a great relationship, then it can sort of undo a lot of earlier damage also. Uh, the opposite is true also. And you can be a fairly well put together person and then later on you can live in an extremely hostile work environment and it can destroy a lot of these earlier patterns although the patterns that laid down earliest in your life are most powerful mm -hmm. yeah and and so um 
I think that I, I was also drawn to an exercise in your book where you, uh, uh, there were a couple of Marias who had anecdotes described in your book. And um, one of them you guided uh, through an exercise where people who were in a group with her did a role play where they took on the roles of people who had traumatized her so that uh, she could experience a different outcome of an interaction yeah. that they were role playing. And, and I read uh, Stacey Haynes's book on somatic experiencing and I realized when she described a very similar anecdote that that's essentially what you were doing and I was talking with a friend about this and she observed how amazing it would be if we could actually do this kind of healing work for each other out in the community instead of potentially needing uh, so many therapists. <laughs> Absolutely. So my, my group, the Trauma Research Foundation, actually is starting again a whole peer support uh, organization network basically because what I was struck by is that when we first started to talk about trauma, uh, and so the critical people in my mind, they were Judy Herman and me, who were close friends and collaborators back then, is that uh, I was running veterans groups, she was running incest survivors groups, after that Evan also incest survivors groups, and what we saw is books like Our Bodies Ourselves, mm -hmm. of women who really supported each other, and this whole uh, sexual abuse awareness movement came out of the feminist society as a peer thing. And what we have also seen among veterans, for example, is that peer support and peer counseling and uh, etc. is extremely powerful and probably more so than the professional help they can get. But that, that, that peer stuff seems to have disappeared. So through the Trauma Research Foundation, we're very active right now in teaching people peer support we actually hooked up an organization in China, of all places, uh, of 120,000 people, which is very small by Chinese standards, <laughs> uh, of people who do peer support with each other. They read books together, they uh, do uh, meditation together, and they have a very complex structure of people really having a, a, a mattress, a holding environment of peers Ready, with whom they can process their stuff. Mm. Yeah. Not unlike what you see in 12-step programs also. Mm -hmm. yeah. Where you really don't have to pay an insurance company in order to get help. Yeah, okay. So, so as we wrap up, I'm just wondering uh, if a parent is listening to this and, and they've experienced trauma in their lives and, and they're seeing the effects of this come out in the ways that they're interacting with their children, um, what, what advice do you have for that parent to, to try to work on interrupting that cycle? Well, um, I think, I think th therapy to work on your own stuff is terribly important maybe particularly therapy as you're having young kids and you can really observe yourself with your kids and observe what it brings up in, inside of you and how you may be terrified your kid will grow up just like somebody who you know and what fears it evokes and what makes you feel comfortable and what makes you feel competent with your kid and to really get a lot of support. You, none of us can raise kids by ourselves. Another thing that really has struck me is that uh, I know a handful of people now, about 10 couples who have young kids, and they're by and large not traumatized people. And what I keep being impressed with is how quickly they find other keep, uh, couples to connect with 
and to help them with co-parenting mm -hmm. and babysitting stuff and uh, we formed little pods of collaborative parenthood and I've seen this in many different places and what also strikes me probably is if you've been traumatized yourself you're probably less likely to easily establish a group like that around you of support mm -hmm. yeah and then you may need some extra help uh, maybe from a professional to find another group of people with whom you can do this together mm -hmm. but I think you know I know people who raise kids all by themselves I think that's an unbelievable challenge <laughs> <laughs> yes I agree yeah. yeah and I know people who, who, who do it and it's very very admirable actually but by and large we need support yeah okay all right so uh so finding ways to get that support and uh in a, in a variety of different ways it, it there's no one model it, that works for everybody it's it's what it is that what you feel you need to be supported with that is the, the important part more than following any kind of prescription for the kind of support that you yeah, should beware have. of anybody who prescribes and says this is the answer yes <laughs> probably, not. probably not awesome and don't forget that if you want to get all the support that you need to work through the process of understanding where your triggered feelings really come from and how to navigate them so that you can respond to your child effectively rather than going into usual fight, flight, freeze or fawn mode where it feels like you don't know how to react, you can sign up between Sunday, August 1st and Wednesday, August 11th. I can't wait to work with you there. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Your Parenting Mojo. Don't forget to subscribe to the show at yourparentingmojo.com to receive new episode notifications and the free guide to 13 reasons your child isn't listening to you and what to do about each one. And also join the Your Parenting Mojo Facebook group. For more respectful research-based ideas to help kids thrive and make parenting easier for you, I'll see you next time on Your Parenting Mojo.